I believe the way things are is not the way things have to be. We'll only really make things better when we all come together, when we all work together, when we all join together, when we work out that we're all in this together. I'm telling you, you can't play politics with people's jobs and with people's services. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank podcast in conversation. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and today I'm joined by Carwin Jones and Glendower Kennedy-Jones. Uh, Carwin Jones was the First Minister of Wales between 2009 and 2018 and was a member of the Senate for Bridgend between 1999 and 2021. Lauer Kennedy-Jones is a fellow of the Institute of Welsh Affairs and has written extensively about constitutional affairs. Welcome to the podcast, both of you. Thank you. Um, so the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is, how successful do you both think uh, the devolution arrangement has been over the past two decades? Well, look, e- each nation has in recent decades developed an individual political culture. In Scotland, Scottish independence continues to dominate the uh, constitutional debate. In Wales, you know, there remains some reluctance for the nation to obtain some of the powers taken for granted in uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland, including control over the police and the judicial system. But uh, the ongoing commission on the constitutional future of the nation is looking at these issues and possible changes of a more structural nature. And yet England, comprising over 56 million people, still lacks a discrete national institution through which its internal inequities may be addressed. And there is now a compelling case for reform. And if we look more carefully at the situation in Wales and Scotland, the powers delegated to those nations have been undermined by Westminster in recent times. Bills for which both parliaments have withheld legislative consent include the European Union withdrawal and future relationship bills, the UK Internal Market Bill and the Subsidy Control and Professional Qualifications Bills. And, uh, we Wales have to contend as Carwin knows far better than I with the Barnet formula, though with its uh, increasing proportional amount year on year since at least 2011. And by 2025, if we look to the future, the budget for Wales could be in effect three billion low pounds lower than if it had grown in line with GDP since 2011. So in search of solutions, Wales has gone to have looked uh, to uh, press Westminster for greater flexibility in managing their budgets, including increases to borrowing limits and cash reserves and the automatic ability to carry forward late in your block grant changes to the next my view systems are working and it's operating badly and westminster needs to accept that having delegated a measure of uh, sovereign authority for prescribed areas of government to the nations it cannot on the pretext of absolute sovereignty of westminster decide to overrule uh, cardiff edinburgh but i'd be interested to hear what uh, carwin carwin has to say well If we look at the Welsh context, when in 1999 the Assembly, as it was then called, started, uh, we had no primary lawmaking powers. We had no revenue-raising powers. We weren't able to borrow money. All those powers came in time, but it shows how limited the powers of the then Assembly actually were. We would spend time debating the potatoes originating in Egypt order, for example, amongst others. I remember that very well. Uh, which was entirely uh, uncontroversial. 
And yet these things ended up on the floor of the assembly because there was little else to talk about, if we're quite frank about it. So we've seen Welsh devolution develop from something that looked like a council to something that is now a revenue-raising, law-making parliament. But devolution since 99 has largely been about, uh, I think I put it this way, throwing powers at various groups of Celts in order to keep them quiet. And that has been done in a completely haphazard way. I remember the vow in Scotland in 2011, uh, which was done, I understand, for political reasons in 2014, rather than the Scottish referendum. Uh, that affected this in Wales negatively, but not much thought was given to what the effect would be in Wales at that point. And part of the difficulty we have with devolution is that it's been carried out in a piecemeal fashion. There hasn't been a pr- proper constitutional change that's gone with it. Glyndur is right that parliamentary sovereignty, which may or may not exist, that's for another day, uh, determines that it is for the Westminster Parliament to decide everything. It can do as it pleases. It can overrule Scottish and Welsh parliaments pretty much as it pleases. It could abolish devolution if it pleased without any reference to the views of the people of Scotland and Wales. Uh, And that really is at the heart of the problem. This idea that Westminster still holds the reins. I'll give one point to a conclusion of where this is a difficulty. Now, bear in mind, there is a hierarchy of parliaments, and if parliamentary sovereignty determines that, there is no hierarchy of governments, however. There are no inherent powers, there's no inherent sovereignty in the UK government, it rests in the UK parliament. But if we look, for example, at the dispute resolution process that exists in the Joint Ministerial Council, where uh, Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland have a dispute they want to take up with the UK government, there is a formal dispute resolution process where the final arbiter is the UK government. So at the end of the day, even though what appears to be a, a an objective dispute resolution process exists, it isn't. that's not what it is. If you have a dispute with the Treasury, for example, the Treasury have a, a habit of announcing new spending plans and saying the funds will be found in-house rather than being consequential for Wales or Scotland. Uh, the billion pound bank in all the islands, a prime example of that. The um, HS2 is a prime example of that, where there's no consequential for Wales, even though that the railway is nowhere near Wales. And yet, if you start the dispute resolution process uh, and you take on the Treasury, it's the Treasury who decides the process. Now, that's just one area, really, of where the current system has limped along for the past 25 years, due largely to the and to an acceptance of the situation, but that's a system that's now coming under pressure for reasons that Glenn Dewar has already explained in terms of some of the newer legislation that comes that has come from uh, the Westminster Parliament, which begins to challenge the uh, the powers that Scotland and Wales have. Um, just thinking about um, in- England, um, do you think that the current lack of clear governance arrangements for England will eventually spark? more meaningful discussions in Westminster about the case for constitutional reform and change. How should we progress greater devolution within England? Well, England endures as the most highly centralised country in Europe, producing almost 22% of the UK's total output. London acts as a strong centripetal force, undermining the position of the uh, English regions generally. I would say, typically, an energised programme of devolution within England would initially evolve locally a fuller rollout of directly elected mayors across its territory, 
and at a national level, updated parliamentary arrangements in Westminster. This initiative could eventually develop into the offer of devolved assemblies for the regions, if desired. Uh, the law encompassing package of devolution for England would beneficially ensure that decentralised bodies become focal to island-wide affairs rather than marginal as present. Uh, the fundamental architectural issue of our time is this, that the administrations in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland cover merely 15% of these isles' inhabitants. And consequently, intergovernmental relations across the UK have become marginal to the affairs of Westminster. Any design must press weight on the relationship between the devolved governments and the government of England, London, in this dual capacity as that for the whole UK and for making English laws. And once, I would hope, far-reaching executive devolution is in place across England, much of the work of the English government will be taken away from London and sit under local or regional direction, leaving Westminster to focus on uh, its more strategic isle-wide uh, objectives. And if we look to the work of Gordon Brown's Commission on the UK's future, complementarily, the House of Lords should purposefully represent the various uh, regions within all four UK territories in its composition. And uh, the Intergovernmental Relations Committee could usefully remain as that for nations only, so not to confuse the uh, subtle differences between devolution within England and uh, devolution for strong parliaments in Belfast, Cardiff, Edinburgh. But for me, uh, UK governmental relations must and need to be redefined on a stronger formal footing and codified in a framework which allows uh, the various governments uh, to plan with confidence and make uh, assured decisions for uh, the various uh, publics uh, in the future. It, England is the the tricky one, if I could put it that way, because of its size. There's no other country uh, that I'm aware of where there are nations or territories, call them what you will, that have specifically distinctive identities, uh, yet one of them is 85% of the entire population of the country, and the US isn't like that. Uh, I think for England, then, the, the scenario is rather different. We are seeing increasing devolution in England, but more on the mayoral model rather than the assembly model. Uh, I very much agree with what the Brown Commission has said, not least because I was on it. So uh, clearly you had some say in, in what was there. And, and, and it does look to address the issue of what happens in England. If we talk about devolution, we tend to think about Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. England is very much an afterthought. And serious thought has to be given as to how you decentralise within England. You can't have one size fits all in England. You've got to ensure that there's sufficient uh, innovative capacity uh, in uh, in terms of the mayors across England so they are able to be innovative in their areas. So they don't have to constantly ask permission of Westminster. Uh, there are very few other countries that have that level of centralisation. Uh, in Europe, there are some, but there are very few of them. Usually, regions are trusted to take their own decisions within a, an agreed framework and are able to be innovative as a result of that. And we, we used to talk at one time of the five motor regions of Europe. Uh, it's no accident that most of them have quite extensive uh, fiscal powers, not so much legislative powers, some of them may, some of them not. And they are able to be innovative. But the idea that all innovation must come from Westminster or be directed by Westminster, even if it's the mayors who actually carry out that innovation, I think those days are gone. Uh, and I think the Brown Commission recognizes that. Absolutely. Um, federalism 
is something that is um, often discussed in relation to uh, the um, state of the UK and the constitutional arrangement uh, in the UK. Might a federal United Kingdom be the answer to uh, some of the issues that we've we've seen and that we've already discussed about um, the constitution and devolution? I think this does follow on uh, from the uh, from the last uh, point. Uh, comprehensive decentralisation from Westminster and, White- and Whitehall is now essential. You know, firstly, to enable communities in various parts of these aisles policies and programmes which better satisfy their needs and priorities. And secondly, to identify and administer the local and regional initiatives required to tackle the economic disparities uh, apparent. In so doing, the different territorial personalities of the arrangements for national devolution of the Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and that of decentralisation within England itself should influence how constitutional reform be approached on a nile-wide basis. National devolution recognises that the UK unitary state is in a construct of formally discrete national entities whose diverse histories and identities are enduringly acknowledged at an institutional level. Decentralisation within England involves a reorganisation of power inside a high-rolled nation of considerable population size to better align decisions to local democratic concerns and demands. Change must therefore take account of these different characteristics, personalities of governance. And through both, the deeply asymmetric nature of the UK can be addressed. And the move towards federalism certainly offers opportunities. The debate has moved on substantively in recent years. Views in Wales about the nature of Cardiff's interactions with Westminster have continued to evolve, especially due to the impact of Brexit. And the mood in Scotland has hardened. So given that maybe a traditional model of federalism is a politically difficult proposal, especially in the Scottish context, in my view, and that secessionist tendencies are increasingly prevalent, I would maybe go one step further and explore some form of broad constitutional compromise, which strategically embraces the concerns of both unionists and nationalists and moves away from a winner-takes-all answer to the challenges ahead. And that's where other uh, constitutional options might also uh, feature of any conversations in the future. But that would be interesting to hear um, uh, Carolyn's thoughts. Well, if we think of federalism as a a nation-state being divided into different territories or regions, each of them with their own equivalent powers, then that's not going to work in the UK. You need a written constitution for that, really, to to my mind. But secondly, we always had an asymmetric system of devolution. Now, for me, there is no reason in principle why Wales and Scotland should not have equivalent powers. And that's if it's set in the uh, the Brown Commission. And that that is something certainly that I hope we will get to in time. But for example, if we look at Northern Ireland, well, there are powers that Northern Ireland has that, to my mind, we wouldn't want in Wales. Northern Ireland, for example, has powers over employment law. To my mind, the uh, the more aligned employment law is, not just across the UK, but across Europe, the better, so that, so that um, the jurisdictions can't undercut each other. Uh, if we look at Northern Ireland as well, for example, the welfare system is if is devolved in executive form, if not legislative form. Again, Wales benefits from being part of the larger GB pot when it comes to the welfare system. I mean, a separate Welsh welfare system wouldn't wouldn't work. 
And for example, in Northern Ireland, uh, there is a separate driving vehicle licensing system. They have their own number plates. They're often seen uh, in the other parts of the UK um, because people buy them as private plates, much to the uh, financial joy of garages in Northern Ireland. There's somebody whose wife is from Belfast. I've seen it happen over and over again. Would we want that in Wales? Well, no, actually, the DVLA's got a big employer in Swansea and it, it helps us to be part of that larger GB. So if we mean through federalism that each region has its own powers, well, are we saying, for example, that the West Midlands would want a tax vary, a tax raising, lawmaking parliament as Wales and Scotland has? I don't think that works. I think there are other models, and we'll, we'll come on to them as part of our discussions. But if we're talking about federalism in terms of there is a federal parliament and then there are entities that each have the not the same size, but each have the exactly the same powers, as is the case in the US, as is the case in Germany. Then I don't think that would work uh, if that model was tried to be applied to the UK. Does confederalism offer opportunities? Do we think? Well, it's, this is something I have uh, explored in writing for some time. I mean, could we not explore a model where you know, we recognise the sovereignty aspirations of the home nations as a way forward? seek to work within a robust social, economic, and security partnership, but directed by a limited, mature political legislature. Your confederalism, advocates for sovereign nations, in our case of radically different population sizes, delegating some sovereign authority to central bodies in areas of agreed common interest. I didn't know the arrangement I've previously uh, thrown out there just for discussion. A council of the Isles, who's members are typically elected for a four-year period, would be responsible for enacting powers on aspects involving defence, diplomacy, internal trade, currency, and macroeconomics, with a uh, committee of member nations convening regularly to discuss other issues which may demand a degree of cooperation and harmonisation of laws. The National Parliament of each nation would assume every power then not delegated to these joint institutions. On federalism, I mean, it would offer as a model common currency, banker market, in support of our economic union, that wrote our social and cultural union. The model could guarantee individuals' rights of uh, employment, residence across all the nations with an agreed basic island-wide level of welfare support. That's important to ensure continued solidarity and equality uh, across the whole uh, population of the isles. And also, forces defence, of course, and foreign policy uh, could be centrally held. To me, in a close, close constitutional confederalism, almost a form of confederal federalism, to quote, in fact, a term uh, cited by Professor John Kincaid almost 20, 25 years ago to, to uh, summarise how the European Union itself was, uh, uh, was uh, travelling. It does, I mean, the model does neatly deal with the sovereignty aspirations of the whole nations, maybe. The real need to share some key functions on an eye-wide basis, which will always be the case uh, um, in these aisles. And also it does present the opportunity for federalization within England itself, if so desired. So we do need to look at some fresh constitutional thinking, but also at the same time not undermine the uh, basic uh, social cohesiveness and the principles of, of equality uh, that we must always promote across the across Britain. Yes, I've heard my my friend and former colleague Mick Anthony um, suggest the idea of confederalism in terms of each of the four constituent parts of the UK having their own sovereignty. 
So instead of sovereignty existing centrally at Westminster, sovereignty will be dispersed to the four territories, countries, call them what you will, what you will. And those territories will then decide where and how that sovereignty should be pooled. Now, obviously, this means the end of parliamentary sovereignty, uh, and it means a radical change to the UK's constitution, which is why it's unlikely, I would have thought, given the, the situation at the moment, but nevertheless, it works quite neatly, uh, to my mind. Uh, it would mean, as Glyndura said, that there would be uh, joint agreements on where sovereignty is pooled. You know, for example, does Wales want an army? No, I would argue. Uh, Defence would be pooled, border and immigration would be pooled. The internal market of the UK would be pooled, but in a more democratic manner than the Internal Markets Act. Uh, it would also mean that there would be uh, social and economic solidarity. We have the Barnett formula is flawed. There's no question about that. But its intrinsic principle is sound, even if its practice, from a Welsh perspective at least, isn't. My Scottish colleagues would argue otherwise, uh, in the sense that money goes where money is most needed. I think that is a hugely important uh, asset as far as the, the UK is concerned. It's one of the things that really works very well, that, that economic and fiscal, monetary and fiscal union. That, uh, that does, I think, does work very well in terms of it, although it could be improved. I think confederalism offers England the opportunity to decide how it decentralizes within England. So we talk then about federalism within England rather than federalism within the UK. So instead of looking at equivalent entities in the UK, we start looking at, at England and saying, okay, what is England doing? It's so big. It's a matter for England to decide how it runs itself in terms of where power actually lies. If you had a blank sheet of paper, I, I think you know, it, it's an attractive model. I think it's you know, let's not pretend that it that it that it, it would take it's a bit it would be very uphill battle uh, to put such a model in place. And I suspect, sadly, that that model will only be considered if there was serious pressure on the union of the UK, uh, which, to my mind, is something to be headed off through proper okay, rather than operating in a crisis mode at, at all times. And, and that's the impression you get sometimes. It's, it's crisis mode. You know, let's let's make sure that we head off something worse by offering something uh, that, that seems better at the moment. That's, that's not the way to manage things. Uh, I think it's important to uh, to look for. So confederate, uh, the confederal model is certainly workable, but highly radical. Uh, and as a result of that, I think it'll be, it'll be a, 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 a difficult effort to persuade any of the parties to adopt it. We've discussed briefly um, a written constitution. Is that something that could be an option? I mean, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on a on a written co constitution? Challenge um, in terms of uh, uh, codifying all our constitutional arrangements in one document is to capture uh, our shared British ideals and values in a framework which strengthens arrangement for self government on the one hand, whilst uh, working within an isle-wide structure typified by uh, tolerance, pluralism, justice, equality, and of course, solidarity. Um, you know, the more centralized the state is in its concept of, let's go back to parliamentary sovereignty, the less likely it is to be successful in acknowledging the partial autonomy, diversity, and the financial challenges facing its constituent nations. Parliaments, let's remember, are created to serve the people. Therefore, the concept of Westminster's parliamentary sovereignty is problematic in these, in these days. 
indeed, it could well be at the heart of the inconsistent practices and the lack of accountability demonstrated by the current UK government. So in a written constitution, people as sovereign establish the binding legal conditions under which their representatives exercise the power entrusted to them. And only on this basis and within the limits set by it are individuals elected and appointed to positions of power. You know, the power rests entirely with the voters. But its uh, most important application is to protect the democratic will of a politically united society with regard to the order that best suits it. And in today's arrangement, in today's UK, this is structured across four parties. There are four governments through the devolution arrangements. And since popular consent is the foundation of trust in any political system, we must move to look at uh, um, seriously uh, releasing, releasing sovereignty or the concept of parliamentary sovereignty from Westminster uh, so that that link uh, between the uh, populations of, of the four nations and to their respective parliaments, governments, is made more accountable and more clearly uh, politically uh, politically accountable so that people feel empowered and uh, and the politicians feel entrusted uh, to plan and uh, make uh, uh, sound decisions on, 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 and I would stress this too, on a longer term basis. There has been uh, far too much short termism in uh, more recent politics. Well, if we look at the current situation, we have a constitution which is based on two principles. One is the rule of law, and the other is Westminster parliamentary sovereignty, by which we mean the House of Commons, because it's it's a superior chamber to the House of Lords. Bizarrely, the UK Parliament doesn't have any territorial limits to its jurisdiction. It could technically ban something in Paris, and it couldn't enforce that, but it doesn't have any territorial jurisdiction. But I think I'm probably going a little bit too extreme there in terms of uh, illustrating the point. Let's remember that parliamentary sovereignty, which may or may not exist in terms of Scotland, as for another day, is based entirely on the view of one man, uh, Professor E. Reed Dicey in Oxford in the 19th century, who came up with a theory of parliamentary sovereignty, which, you know, hey-ho, uh, the parliament grasped with both hands. If somebody said to you, you can do whatever you want without limits, why wouldn't you uh, take that on board? And the courts have recognised that. But of course, we, we are increasingly seeing I think, a movement towards a conflict between the rule of law and parliamentary sovereignty. The ending of what Peter Callender called the good chap theory of government, that the, the, the people have restraints that they impose on themselves, even if the law doesn't do it. And one of the questions I've often posed is, what happens if the House of Commons tried to do something that is clearly against the rule of law? Where did the course go? If the Supreme Court wanted to, it could modify or ignore parliamentary sovereignty. It's perfectly able to do that because there's no law that says parliamentary sovereignty exists. So we have this uncertainty. In normal times, you could probably deal with that. But in days when there might be a possibility when the House of Commons does something so extreme uh, that the court feels it infringes upon uh, what we call it what natural justice, not quite the same concept, but the rule of law, what would the courts do then? Interesting question. All this, of course, can be resolved by a written constitution. It's not without its problems. Sometimes a written constitution can be too rigid. And we see that, of course, in the US. Sometimes the, the method of changing that constitution is too rigid. In Ireland, the constitutional changes are enacted by simple referendum. And in the US, there's a far more uh, complicated process included, uh, involving both the federal houses and, of course, 
majority of the states. So there's a balance to be struck there. Again, if there was a blank sheet of paper, I'd say a written constitution is important. There are very you know, people are very fond of saying, "Well, people admire the UK system." Well, they don't really, because most of them haven't adopted it. Most of them have written constitutions, and those that don't, like Israel, and one of the reasons for the protests in Israel is uh, the current Israeli government proposing that the Israeli Supreme Court should not have jurisdiction over Israeli Knesset and the laws that it makes, which is exactly what we have in the UK. In Israel, it's seen as the imposition of some kind of um, dictatorship. So, to my mind, yes, again, a written constitution would be certainly very much workable and will provide greater clarity, especially when there is a strain on what we've known over the past 150 years. But again, the practical way, practically, it's it's an immensely difficult um, project to take forward. Mm-hmm. Um. How do you think we should progress to construct a future where all feel comfortable with our constitutional arrangements going forward? Would this involve uh, consultations, referendums? How would we achieve that? I think it would need to be progressed on a number of levels. I mean, with many now asserting a uh, multicultural Scottish, Welsh, English, or Northern Irish character before claiming a form of dual nationality, which also embraces a British personality, it is legitimate. You know, to reconsider our position and uh, be sovereignty and such that it more appropriately encompasses authority over a uh, more uh, nuanced select, select uh, portfolio of vital-like functions. The pressing issue, and uh, this sort of uh, summarizes some of the uh, previous points, relates to whether sovereignty as currently understood should be shared across five territorially defined identities, including that of Britain, in a traditional federal arrangement, or instead assigned individually to the four nations, which in turn would delegate or pool parts of uh, their sovereign authority to common central institutions of a fundamentally British civic character. Indeed, the UK's withdrawal from one union, the European Union, has intensified debates in Scotland and Wales about whether it should lead to the departure of their, of their territories from another union, the United Kingdom. The situation in Northern Ireland is admittedly more complex, but the inevitability of a border poll on Irish unity at some point, I think, in the future is progressively recognised. So if those forces entrenched in perpetuation of the current United Kingdom model remain inflexible to the legitimate concerns of the peoples of these islands, including those of the English regions, let's, let's remember, you know, there are relationships, constitutional arrangements, risk uh, fracture. It is imperative, Will, to go to your question, that an informed debate on what kind of future would be, would get the most greatest traction and support across all elements of our society, English, Scottish, Northern Irish, Welsh and British, is progressed. And the challenge of that time is not so much that exploration of constitutional futures is not being had, but that it is progressed separately within each nation rather than collectively as neighbours. Uh, having debates individually is good in terms of engaging uh, the public, also uh, focusing minds within various political parties, but at the same time we need to talk about shared functions and what is important to us, uh, not just to us today, but also to our children and our children's children. We need to look at the longer, at the longer duree, the long, the long time. So establishing a new framework with the support of the four parliaments, it could prove invaluable across the political spectrum. 
uh, with some fighting reassurances uh, in articulating the more distinct development of the UK's practices in uh, a federal constitution of some description, and with others seeking to cement the, um, the, the sovereignty position of the four parliaments in relation to a common British structure. Uh, there are lots, you know, there are lots of opportunities ahead of us too. I mean, I understand these kinds of conversations have those who, uh, who, who take entrenched positions. I think it's important that we try to get ourselves to a space where uh, unionists and nationalists can speak helpfully and usefully and constructively together and more in the, in the more collaborative sense and uh, fully understand when we share. We share far more than we do have differences and uh, we need also to not look so much to the here and now but also to 10, 25 years from now and uh, fit uh, and create a Britain that's fit for the 21st century. I think that the, 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 some of the difficulties that exist in taking this forward, first of all, you would need to have a constitutional convention process. And that's something that I've, I've talked about in the past. It would need to be an agreed process amongst all the governments. And that's not going to be easy, but that would have to be done. It would then come up, have, would then have to come up with proposals that to my mind would have to be adopted in a referendum. This is a, this is a big constitutional change. Uh, and then, of course, you start with the question then are, well, uh, does each uh, of the four nations vote separately? What if some vote no and some vote yes? Uh, does everybody have to be in a, to vote one way or the other? All these things you know, are problematic. They're not impossible to resolve. But I think we have to recognize some of the, the inherent difficulties in, in implementing uh, something that may on the face of it be be quite sensible. Uh, I, I will take the UK forward. So I don't think we're on the verge of a uh, seismic change in the constitution of the UK. Uh, I think we will continue to see incremental changes, although I am concerned at the way in which the current UK government is working in terms of uh, devolution. I think there are many in that government who instinctively don't like the idea of any power leaking out of Westminster, who don't like the idea of Scotland and Wales. They don't tend to think or care about Northern Ireland, but Scotland and Wales, why, why should they? Why, they're mere regions. Why should they have their own parliaments? And there is that attitude there. And I think they have had a free hand. Uh, they will be even more intrusive than they are now. So that is something at least to be, uh, to be grateful for. But the very fact we're having this debate is a sign of how things have changed. 20 years ago, this would not have been a debate. We've been talking about devolution, the various models, how they would work, uh, and that would have been the extent of the debate. To move on now to talking, and let's not pretend it's something we hear all the time in the street, but now the fact we're talking about it shows that you know, a lot of thought is being taken, given rather, to the way in which we uh, address the all these islands and you know, the very start of his contribution. Again, I mentioned the Council of the Isles. I, I, I've been, I've attended many of those meetings, and they, they, they don't achieve very much. They're great for meeting people and meeting people at the margins of the meetings, but only on one occasion in the nine years I was first minister, and I see a UK prime minister there, and that was in the aftermath of Brexit when Theresa May came along. Otherwise, the UK prime minister never attended, not once. The Irish Taoiseach would always attend, always arriving late. I suspect to to make a grand entrance. Uh, and always been reminded that, that uh, his jet was about to arrive, which made us all feel slightly um, uh, second rate as a result of that. And 
it was a great opportunity for the islands, particularly from their perspective. They loved it. Isle of Man, Jersey, and Guernsey. It was an opportunity for them to meet with us, uh, which otherwise they perhaps wouldn't have. But in reality, if we look at the output of the Council of the Isles, it, 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 there's little to it because it's not actually asked to do anything. It doesn't have any decision-making capacity. What you need is a body, an intergovernmental body within the UK uh, that actually has an ability to agree common positions amongst governments a little bit like the European Council. Uh, and that's what we lack at the moment within the UK. There's no mechanism. And that's why, in my experience, the JMC tends to be a place where people go to argue and raise grievances. Uh, there's very little agreement there. Uh, it tends to be, it's not a shout down, I won't go that far, but it tends to be a place where there's just, just endless disagreement. And that's in nobody's interest. Uh, if there was a way of, of agreeing a common way forward on uh, various issues, I think the JMC would be far better and the UK would be strengthened because of it. Thank you both uh, for taking the time to speak to me. Um, if people want to find out more about you, uh, follow what you're getting up to, uh, where should they go to, to find out more about you? They can seek out my uh, booklet, A League Union of the Isles, which uh, uh, gratefully Carrie opened uh, wrote a preface for. Uh, as for me, I, I'm usually to be found making comments here, there, there and everywhere. Um, I'm a professor in Aberystwyth University, a law professor there, but uh, I, I'm not usually um, somebody who was quiet on the media. I try, to, I try not to get involved too much in partisan politics these days. Uh, it's surprising how quickly you go from being a partisan politician to be cross-examined to being an elder statesman to be allowed to speak as you want on the radio, which I very much, much, which I very much like. But um, yes, I mean, for the two of us, again, do it myself. Um, keep an eye out for social media. We usually do be found there. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you both for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you.